A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 11, Hermione's Helping Hand. As Hermione had predicted, the six years free periods were not the hours of blissful relaxation Ron had anticipated but times in which to attempt to keep up with the vast amount of homework they were being set. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. I'm Casper Tokal. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. I am sure that many of you have already supported Raices on our website through our Don't Be a Dursley campaign, but if you haven't yet, now is a great moment. Pause the podcast, go to harrypottersacredtext.com, click on the orange button that says Don't Be a Dursley, and please support Raices and the amazing work that they are doing on the border, helping get legal support to people who need it. You can also look in the show notes. It's so easy. Join us and make a donation. We're raising 25 grand between now and Christmas Day. Our community is showing up and showing what we stand for together. No children in cages, children in Hogwarts. Vanessa, what is the fifth largest city in the United States? I feel like she is a forgotten city amongst the list makers. Okay, so we know that it's Los Angeles, New York City, Chicago, and then somewhere in Texas. Yeah, Houston. I was going to say Dallas. Phoenix. And you know what else is in Phoenix? Fox. Fox retired in Phoenix. Fox left to play golf and so moved to Scottsdale. There are more than 200 golf courses in Phoenix. But you know what else is in Phoenix? The Order of the Phoenix, a local group run by Araya Larson. We're so thrilled that they're there. It's an amazing name joke. I love how every local group is one-upping each other with their amazing names. So go check out the Order of the Phoenix on harrypottersacredtext.com forward slash groups and see if you have a group near you. So, Casper, it is your turn to tell a story. What have you got? 
Well, since moving to New York, most of my downtime has involved working with Sean to figure out our house, setting up the gas bill, going to Ikea, going back to Ikea, because that's what has to happen. And something magical happened about two weeks ago where I woke up on a Saturday morning. And usually, if I can, I turn off my phone on Friday night, turn off my laptop. So I have that kind of real peaceful Friday evening. And so when I wake up on Saturday, you know, I hear the proverbial birds singing Less so in New York City, but nonetheless, this sense of quiet and calm is there to greet me on Saturday morning. No alarm clock. I make a cup of tea and I pick up the only print subscription I have, the London Review of Books, which reminds me of home and stimulates me with interesting things that I wouldn't usually learn about. And I prop up my pillow against the headboard and I just sit there and don't have to do anything. And it just struck me that I was like, this is the most pleasurable moment of the week. And I'm literally sitting in my bed with a cup of tea, which is strange to me because what has given me pleasure in the past has been adventure and travel and theme parks and new experiences. And so it was this reflection of, is this about getting older? Is it about actually my life being full of many wonderful things? And so actually it's nice not to be stimulated by new experiences. And it made me think about pleasure because maybe what gives us most pleasure is also what is most rare. And so when I'm 12, I desperately want to go on a flume log ride, right, which happens once a year. And when I'm 32, I desperately just want a cup of tea and a quiet, quiet day. So as we read this chapter through this theme of pleasure, I want to think about how pleasure and scarcity are related. Do you know what gave me most pleasure in your story was picturing you in your bed because it turns out that you and I bought the same bed. So when you described propping yourself against your headboard, I'm like, yes, I have the same headboard. It's so cushiony. So cushiony and comfortable. Yeah. We have great taste. Sean, you have great taste. (laughs) I love that Sean and I bought the same bed. It would also give me great pleasure to recap what happens in this chapter. Yes, it's your turn to go first. 30 seconds on the clock. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. So everybody shows up for Quidditch trials, and it turns out that it's because Harry is really dreamy now. And so he runs a really good trial, and then like Ginny gets on the team, and thank God Katie Bell gets on the team, and she's so cool. And then it's like the big time for Ron to try. And whoops, Hermione maybe helps a little bit. But then they go down to Hagrid and Hagrid is really upset. And he's like, you don't think I'm a good teacher? And oh, my God, it actually is so sad. Aragog is dying. And Hermione is like, can we help? And Ron's like, yeah, can we help? I hate spiders. Okay, Casper, I missed one or two things. If you could fill them in, I'd really appreciate it. On your mark, get set. First of all, the monster Aragog is finally dying and a new dawn can begin in the forest. Thank God. Um, And enablers like Hagrid need to move on and not sustain a falling regime. Okay. Um, But also, uh, Harry's still obsessed with Draco and it's like, well, somehow he's getting things in. Like, Hermione's like, no, all the owls are being checked. Also, he gets a new copy of his um, potions book, but like takes off the cover of the old one and puts it on the new one. So disguising it. And um, Ron gets on the team and is very happy about it and totally oblivious. <laughs> okay, can we start with this <laughs> yes. big moment? So Ron has a great tryout for the Quidditch team. He catches five out of five goals. McLagan is like, Ginny didn't try hard. And Harry's like, that's not true. It was actually the trickiest one. Because he gets four out of five. Right, because McLagan only gets four out of five. And McLagan is like, oh, I should get on the team. I'm better than Weasley. Let me try again. And I will say McLagan sounds like a real jerk butt face. But the great moment 
is that it becomes very clear that Hermione has taken it upon herself to confund McLagan so that he misses the one goal and not tell Ron that she has done this for him. And I am projecting pleasure in this moment. But when I can help a friend and have them never find out, nothing gives me greater pleasure. It makes me feel sneaky and smart and like they don't have to be grateful. I secretly wish that I was like a fixer in the 1940s that like allowed women to like fake adopt their own children that they had out of wedlock. (laughs) Like I love stuff like this. I live for it. I think McLagan would have been a terrible team member. I think that Hermione is totally justified in doing this, and I have zero problems with the fact that she cheated. (laughs) Only pleasure. Okay, so I have two thoughts. The first is that I totally hear you, right? Like, a few months ago, I knew a friend was struggling a little financially, and I was able to basically send them, like, an anonymous card in the mail with a hundred bucks and was just, like, it felt great to just, just a small little sign of, like, the universe loves you, like, you're, you're not beholden, right? Like, and I, I don't even know what their reaction was, but, like, it felt really nice to do something nice like that. Yeah, um, and it's Maimonides' highest form of charity, anonymous right. charity. It's the charity that gets you closest to God. Well, now I've just pulled myself away from God because I talked about it on the podcast. No, but your friend doesn't know. Does your friend listen to the no, podcast? No. Then then they sound like an idiot. Why'd you send them $100? But here's the thing. We berated rightly Marope for what she did in the previous chapter. And what Hermione does is much less intense, right? It's a one-time thing. There's no kind of a personal abuse or physical intimacy that's happening. But nonetheless, like, she cheats McLagan out of a fair judgment. And she may be right in her character judgment of McLagan, right? Like, this isn't someone on your team. Look how he reacted to losing. But on the other hand, this is all the things that Katie Bell warned us about of friends protecting friends in order to get on the team. And you just don't care because you're happy about it. I have so many justifications to offer you. (laughs) Justification one. If McLean had done really well, then Ron's confidence would have gone down and he wouldn't have done as well, Mm -hmm. which doesn't actually simulate game time skill, right? Like you're not going head to head, goalie to goalie. You're not in direct competition with the other goalie. And so I think that Hermione is saying these tryouts are culturally biased against people who don't do well under direct scrutiny and competition. And Ron is again about to be a victim of Harry Potter's fame because everybody else got to try out under a little bit of a cloak of anonymity. But now, like, the entire school is watching. And so she was trying to culturally change the formation of this test. I can justify this all day. Bring it. So I don't buy that at all. But what I do buy is that Hermione is saying, you know what, at this point— The Dark Lord is risen. In this chapter, we learn Hannah Abbott's mother has been killed. I mean, Ron has this devastating line when they open the newspaper saying, has anyone died that we know? Right? And it's just like, this is the world that they're living in. So if you tell me that Hermione does this confounding because she just, like, she wants to make the most of the pleasure that they have left, I buy that 
every day and I forgive her completely. (laughs) I like that, too. I think she just had all sorts of reasons. There is, right? There's this, like, we're in wartime. Let's get our pleasure while we can and where we can. And let's enjoy Quidditch while we can because one day. Slash probably tomorrow. Yeah. Quidditch isn't going to be around or it's certainly not going to be our highest priority. And it's so lovely because Harry kind of confronts her about it, right? They're walking into the Great Hall. They're a couple of steps behind Ron. And he basically says, it sure looked like McLagan was confunded. She blushes and outright admits that she she did it. And there's something about that moment that actually like doubles the pleasure, like that they both get to love Ron, knowing that they've helped him you know, achieve something that he, de- he desperately wants to do. And, of course, Ron is insufferable in the way because he's like, did you see what I did? Oh, McLegan's so stupid. But, you know, both of them look at him with this, like, loving, like, he's our dope kind of thing. And there's something here again about how sharing the pleasure just enriches the experience for both of them. And, like, I want to dig into why doing something nice for someone else gives us pleasure. Like, what is what is happening there? Because this is not something that necessarily pays off for them. I guess they don't have Ron moping around, but surely it's more than that. Like, is it about seeing someone you love live into their gifts and about them being fully alive? Like, what 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 happens in those moments? That's really interesting. I used to not believe in altruism. I huh. used to really be like, no, everything we do is selfish. And sometimes we do things that look selfless, but they're actually to make us happy. Exactly what you're saying. Maybe they're doing it so that Ron's not mopey. But I've really come around on, like, believing that love creates altruism. Mm. And I think that if you love someone, all love is to me is seeing your fates as entirely tied up in one another, right? That your happiness is my happiness. And and I think that when we talk about the, like, Christian ideal of loving your neighbor, that's all we mean, right? As, like, see your fates as intertwined. If they're suffering, you are suffering, And so I think that we do these altruistic things that we can see them as non-altruistic because it lifts us up. But I think that really, if you love someone, their bad day is your bad day. If I have the best day of my life and like I get a million pieces of good news and like eight puppies get delivered to me and then I come and I see you and you've had a terrible day, then that day is no longer a good day Mm. because I love you and whether or not you're happy materially matters to me. Oh, this is so helpful. And as you were talking, I was thinking so much of my friend Caroline, who survived breast cancer three years ago and had been part of a Facebook group of other women who'd been diagnosed around the same time. And, you know, there was one woman in Tennessee who, you know, she'd obviously never met or or even spoken to on the phone, but they kind of had this rhythm together of having chemo at the same time and both separating from partners during that whole process. So when one day she went on Facebook and saw that this woman's cancer had returned, the first thing Caroline did was took five days off work, booked a flight to Tennessee. She hadn't even spoken to this woman. She'd already booked the trip and like pretty much showed up being like, I'm here to help care for your children and for you this week. What do you need? And she cooked and she cleaned and she took the kids on trips and she drove. And I asked her, like, why did you do this, this incredible thing? And she, you know, she said, like, People showed up for me who I'd never met, right? People who baked cookies and made tisans and the women who knitted hats in the oncology waiting rooms and all of this stuff. And I want to be part of someone passing that on. And, and this was that self piece was like, and if it does come back for me, I want to know that other people will show up again for me in the way that I have done for this woman. It's deeper than pleasure. I I feel like 
maybe they're just like different levels of pleasure. I, I don't know what it is, but when it's so real and like gritty, like that goodness that shines through in moments like that, when we, are, when we can show up for each other. And this whole scene in this chapter is kind of cloaked in humor, but what's underneath it is really powerful, right? It's, it's Hermione saying, I'm willing to do things for you, Ron, because they will make you happy. And I, I like, I'll, kind of break my own rules about who I think I should be and how the world is because I care about you and I'll do anything for you. That's what life is about when that's what we do. Also, part of the pleasure is the schadenfreude of it, <laughs> right? It's we should like, talk about that, yeah. Because nothing gives me more pleasure than jerks getting their comeuppance, right? And we, like, don't get to see that in real life a lot. We just don't. And so this is a moment in which McLagan is a jerk, he's a bully, he has violent tendencies, and she gets to shut him down. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And I would like to say that formally, what she does is cheating, and I don't approve. Wink. <laughs> Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So I want to talk about Hagrid in this chapter. We're a third of the way into the book at this point, probably. And really, the trio and Hagrid haven't had a moment to connect. And Hagrid seems to be missing from meals. And like, there's this growing gulf between them. And Harry and the gang finally say, okay, really, we've got to, we've got to go say hello. So they go after Quidditch practice to seek out Hagrid. And he's really angry at them. Understandably, he feels abandoned, all of that. And the situation they find themselves in, I think, is familiar which is what do you do when someone you love has a pleasure that you don't share? 
they're not interested in the caretaking of magical creatures. It is the love of Hagrid's life to do that job. And Harry lies about why they didn't take the class. You know, we couldn't fit it into our schedules. They they don't tell Hagrid that we don't like what you love. And so I wondered, but what do we do when someone else's pleasure just isn't ours and we, we don't want to hurt their feelings? I mean, Peter and I have this in our relationship, right? Like he loves classical music and just feels so sorry for me that, like, I think it's lovely background music, but (laughs) entirely ignorable. And I concede his point that it's just a language that I don't understand and that if I did understand it, I would really come to love it. But he then feels the exact same way about musical theater. I love musical theater and feel really sorry for him that he is just, like, missing how fantastic musical theater is. And I just think it, it's fine as long as you respect humbly that you genuinely just don't appreciate it, but that it is in no way inferior to your life. Well, that's that's what's interesting. I think you're so right that it, often it's when we don't know enough about something to appreciate its beauty and its complexity and its history. You know, I think we need to know enough to support the person that we love's joy, right? Like you go to concerts with Peter. I go to concerts with Sean. And they come to things with us that they might never go to on their own. And what happens in this chapter is that Hermione and Harry, without really meaning to, kind of offer to help with Aragog in some way. And that's the moment when the whole conversation softens, right? That's the moment when Hagrid is like, okay, I know that you care for me. I know that you love me. And I think, crucially, I know that you respect me. Because I think that's what hurt more than anything for him is that they sort of judged him as unworthy or stupid or, you know, something that he's already probably sensitive to. And that in this question, they're legitimizing his passion and his pleasure in a way that, you know, doesn't make him feel small. Yeah, it's a really interesting moment when they arrive, when Hagrid is like, I am a professor. Like, I am a teacher here. And I think that he is only coming out like that because he does, to your point, feel disrespected and feels like my pleasures are valid. And just because they're not yours does not make me less than. Mm -hmm. The other thing that this Hagrid visit made me think of in terms of pleasure is that one of my grandmothers, who I really did love and was very close to, she, for a while, went through a period in which she was so unpleasant to be around that we didn't want to visit her. And part of it was we would visit her at least once a week, if not twice a week, which is like a lot, pretty good for grandkids. And no matter how often you called or visited, she would complain that it wasn't more. And there was this interesting interaction where I was like, you know, if you wouldn't complain, I might visit more because it would be more pleasurable to come. And it's just easier to do pleasurable things. And I always wonder about that as to whether is it somebody's job to be a pleasure to be around? You don't want to admit it, but it's just easier to visit pleasant people where there's just a little bit of pleasure, but you don't want to demand that mm. from people. And so when Hagrid is so unpleasant, I, I'm like, he's allowed, but I'm also like, that's how you end up lonely. It's a bad tactic. I just wonder about that as to like whether or not it's our responsibility to make ourselves a pleasure to be around. Well, or it's the rare relationships. And I think this very powerful relationship between Harry and Hagrid sits at the heart of this scene, which is that Harry, once he's made the decision to go, insists, you know, he's the one who's cheeky back at Hagrid, who uses, you know, he says, sir, to kind of 
pinch that balloon. He's, he's the, like, I'll knock the door down. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to come in whether you want me to or not. Right. Like he breaks down that barrier that, that Hagrid has set up in a way that only someone who's really, really close and trusting and loving knows where that boundary is. And I think Harry gets it right here. But it's it's a beautiful moment because it, it's this kind of rapprochement between characters that have really grown away from one another. And it is the the pleasure of their friendship that brings them back together. And I think that we see the flip side of, you know, Hermione taking such pleasure from what she was just able to do with Ron and Hermione genuinely missing Hagrid and like really welling up at the thought that they've hurt him. She's known abstractly that they've probably hurt him, but actually being confronted with that hurt makes her tear up, right? And so she is simultaneously experiencing like your pleasure is my pleasure and your pain is my pain. Mm -hmm. And I just think that that shows how brilliant Hermione is at loving that she doesn't just reap the rewards from love, which I think sometimes is what I do is say like, oh, you're happy. I'm going to celebrate with you. And then when somebody is like grumpy or mean, I'm like, well, that is about you and not about me. And I'm <laughs> going to go over here. Right. But Hermione is simultaneously able to celebrate with people and willing to sit with them in their pain, which is such a beautiful thing about her. Mm, yeah. So maybe the final moment that I really found pleasure in <laughs> identifying this chapter was this lovely, sweet moment when Ron notices that Lavender is smiling at him. And I opened the story this week about pleasure, thinking about how it relates to scarcity. And I think this is one of those moments. We know that the overarching challenge for Ron is to live not in Harry's shadow, to be his own person. And, you know, Weasley is our king and his role in the Quidditch team is a big part of that. But in this moment, we really see how the attention of someone having had literally tens of people who weren't even in (laughs) Gryffindor apply to be on the Quidditch team just so they could be near Harry, having one person, Lavender, who smiles at Ron, just it even transforms the way he walks, right? He starts kind of strutting. And so I do think that that there's something about that scarcity idea that's important because, frankly, those adoring kind of first years looking at Harry mean nothing to Harry at this point. Everyone loves Harry. Everyone, you know, either everyone hates him or everyone loves him. He doesn't trust that anymore. But for Ron, this is the first time, really, that someone's paying him this kind of attention. And it means a lot. <laughs> first of all, I think that this kind of attention would mean a lot to Harry, too. Mm. Harry gets just objectified for his fame. None of these people like him for him. Whereas Lavender has known Ron for five years now. And so there's at least this like feeling or sense that she has chosen him and that she likes him. And the cynical part of me is like a lot of people sort of choose to have a crush on the drummer instead of the lead guitarist because you're like, I have more of a chance with the drummer. (laughs) Part of liking the drummer is feeling special. Like, nobody appreciates him, but I do. Everybody wants the front man. But I know that the drummer is actually secretly, like, the great hot one. That's how I felt about Brian and the Backstreet Boys. I was like, everyone's into Nick. It's all about Brian. Yeah, it's how I still feel about Neil Diamond, right? Like, I love Neil Diamond. And part of that is because everybody else makes fun of Neil Diamond. And I'm like, no, I get you. But I do think that, yes, we've seen Hermione get this kind of attention from Victor. We've seen Harry get this kind of attention from Cho. And this is the first time that it's about Ron in this way. And so I totally agree with you that 
I mean, especially I just remember the first couple of times that you realize someone like you when you're young and the pleasure that you get from that. And it's such a strange thing. You're like, ooh, it feels good to be objectified in this way. I also just remember being confused. <laughs> I'm like, I really was. Totally. I was like, really? Me? But why? <laughs> Which is another lovely thing is that he recognizes it, right? Yeah. And I sort of love Ron for believing it, mm. which ironically, maybe it's Hermione that helps him feel confident enough to believe Lavender. But I like that he, you know, a girl smiling at him and he's like, ooh, like I'm being objectified and I like it, which I think is something interesting about pleasure, right? Is that And we know this from consent stories, too. You can have two of the exact same things in slightly different ways or from slightly different people or at slightly different times, and they can either be pleasurable to you or really horrible. Harry is being objectified by all of these girls, and he is like, I hate it. This is, like, just a distraction. Ron is being objectified by Lavender, and he's like, yeah, I love it. Pleasure is such a situational thing, right? Like, I take tremendous pleasure from sugar, but there is a point where I've eaten so much sugar that it stops tasting sweet, right? It, like, literally gets gross. And so I think that one of the things that's so interesting about pleasure is how situational it is. If Hermione were to cheat in any way that was higher stakes, I would not find it pleasurable. I would be reproaching her the way that we reproach her for what she does with Rita Skeeter or what she does to Marietta, right? When Hermione breaks the rules, I often find it really offensive. And in this, I'm like, nope, this situation, I'm fine with it. I really like this reframe that pleasure is about situation rather than scarcity. I think I'd introduce that difference from my experience. But you're right. Like, yes, now I work a lot and I have wonderful experiences and I get to travel for my job and there's all sorts of wonderful things that I have long looked forward to in like adult life. And so the situation that I'm in now means that a Saturday morning in bed, snuggling and reading the newspaper is heaven. And, you know, when I'm a 12 year old in the British countryside, going to New York City is the most exciting thing. So I I like that. Pleasure is all about the situation. I mean, and we know this, like, there's nothing that will give me greater pleasure that when I get back from a run than a glass of water. Mm. But, like, on a long night where I get to just, like, snuggle up with Peter and watch a movie, I do not feel that way about a glass of water. I feel that way about a glass of wine, right? And so I just think that we really have to be looking very specifically about what's what gives us pleasure and when. Yeah. So my final thought on this theme of pleasure is how we lose it. Because there can be activities that, you know, actually in this chapter, we see it with Quidditch. Like Quidditch was Harry's freedom. Quidditch was Harry's escape, his place of, you know, feeling like he's fully himself. And now it's work. He's the team captain. He has to make difficult choices. He's not even on the broom. And I think that that move from pleasure to responsibility or from pleasure to work is one that's happening more and more around us as, as, you know, a lot of people have hobbies that become hustles, right? Like you start to try and make money from it and suddenly you're not creating art for the joy of it, but you're trying to get an income. Um, You're crocheting hats and selling them on Etsy. Yeah, exactly. You're no longer giving them to house elves for free. You've got a a side business from Hogwarts LLC. Um, So there's this weird transformation that can happen from the things that gave us most pleasure that turn into not being pleasurable anymore, right? Because there's all of this added pressure. But it depends on what constraints we put on it, right? Because when there's discipline, it can become more fun. Yeah, seven crochet hats every day. (laughs) 
when Quidditch is like just a game, it's fun. But when you're practicing with the same team and you love Angelina and you really want to make her proud and you do, it's like the greatest source of pleasure when you have a little bit of skin in the game. And then when it's Mm. your livelihood, right, then it becomes this other thing. Rather than elevating the thing, you're reducing it again. And that's, for me, one of the most compelling arguments for this policy idea of a universal basic income, because we all know that being a teacher or a nurse is so much more meaningful than moving money around on Wall Street. And yet our economic system rewards one in massively disproportionate ways. And so if there's some way where we could decouple what you create and do in the world with the money that you earn to live happily, healthily, and sustainably. My hope is that each of us would actually unearth new creative capacities, that we would risk more and create more and collaborate more and and do wild things that would make the world a more beautiful, pleasurable place. What I want us to avoid is, is just thinking that, oh, as long as I do more of this pleasurable thing and I make it my full-time job, that it's going to keep that high level of pleasure because it will change like, like it has for Harry in this chapter if suddenly it is... Uh, more central to essentially how we survive. So, Casper, it is my turn to bring a Chavruta question to our sacred reading practice. And just as a reminder, Chavruta is the Jewish practice of asking a question and then offering an answer to that question. And so really, the Jewish practice is a study practice where two people bend together over a book and ask a series of questions of the book and of one another. And the idea is that sort of two minds in a book, you can come up with any sort of solution to any sort of problem, and that the true answer isn't in any individual answer, but is actually in the entire conversation. My favorite image for it is like a triangle. Like there's the text, there's you, and there's me. And the answer is somewhere in the middle of that triangle. Or all of the middle of the triangle. It's the whole triangle. The whole middle. The whole middle. So my question is, what is going on in this chapter with these quote-unquote silly girls led by Ramelda Vane? She's back. (laughs) She tried it once in the train. She's now trying it on the field. So what happens is that these young women show up to try out for Quidditch regardless of whether or not they can fly or are in the right house. Seems quite fundamental. (laughs) It seems as though one or both of those things is required in order to actually make it onto the team. But the text really invites us to judge these young women in a way that I think the text would invite us to judge young men very differently. And so I'm wondering what you think about this presentation in the text. And what I would like to offer is that this is about a group of girls sharing a desire and motivating each other and themselves to go after something and have an experience and is actually an incredibly healthy, happy, joyful, silly expedition where they do something that they never thought they were going to do, which is try out for a Quidditch team and are using this like famous boy is an excuse to have like a great experience. Oh my God. I'm like teary eyed as you're talking because this is what the text says. The second group comprised 10 of the silliest girls Harry had ever encountered who, when he blew his whistle, 
merely fell about giggling and clutching each other. This isn't about Harry. This is about friendship and adventure. Like, Ramil Devane was amongst them. When he told them to leave the pitch, they did so quite cheerfully and went to sit in the stands to heckle everyone else. Like, this is about them feeling confident that this is their school, their field, their place to play in. I feel like their confidence and their self-knowledge is actually extremely mature. Like, I'm going on my first LARPing adventure this weekend. This is how I feel, right? Like, I'm going with a friend and I just want to have a hilarious adventure and, like, clutch onto each other and have a fit of giggles. Like, this is great. But because it's Chavruta, I have to give you my answer and it has to be different from the one that you gave. (laughs) Perhaps the girls are actually embodying the exact purpose of this whole game, right? Like... Quidditch is supposed to bring us together, supposed to have fun. And what I love is that when they don't get into the team, right, they had a fair try, they go and sit and then they heckle slash cheer, I think, everyone else, right? So they're still participating as spectators. And so they're they're still sharing their joy. It's not an extractive experience of like, I'm coming to the city of Prague on my stag weekend. I'm going to get drunk and like pee on your statues and then fly home. No, like I, I'm hanging around and I'm celebrating with whoever does get picked. And so there's a there's a generosity in this silliness, if we have to use that word, that actually transforms the whole experience, I think. Yeah, I think that you pointed to the exact difference. Like part of me was like, maybe these girls are silly, right? I judge bachelorette, you know, party weekends who like go to a gay club, right? Right, right. Absolutely. And I think that that's right to your prog point of like, this is not your space and you are actually extracting and you are objectifying people who are often marginalized Mm. and have no power, Mm. whereas this is an open tryout. They're not going and crashing a practice, right? nor are they being asked to dance at halftime. Absolutely. So, like, they aren't being exploited. They aren't exploiting anybody else. There's something opportunistic about it, but in a way that, again, I just think doesn't harm anybody. It, at worst, wastes two minutes of Harry's time. But isn't it worth it to see people giggling and clutching one another? Ugh, I just love that image. I do too. And I just want to defend, I feel like traditionally when men gather at sporting events, it's considered this like community building, like non-waste of time. But when like women gather Mm. for book groups, it's like jokes about Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. And when women like grab each other and clutch together and laugh, Often men feel threatened by that and feel as though it's possible that the women are laughing at them. Right. Which is what's happening here, right? I, th- I, th- I think Harry is unsettled by this kind of playful joy that these girls are having. It doesn't fit in with his control of the whole situation. I think there might be an echo of that. Yeah, and, like, they're not laughing at him. Right. They're just, like, laughing because they're bad at Quidditch and, like, there's a famous boy and isn't this, like, the most ridiculous thing? And so I just want to, like, decouple mm. Silly is a derisive term from laughing, giggling, hysterical girls. And I also think this is why there's like this reputation that women aren't as funny as men. It's because women laughing is threatening to the patriarchy because it is possible that we are laughing at you. Mm. And so men don't want to laugh with women. Mm. Um, So I just really want to decouple all of that. I freaking love Havruta. That's such a beautiful reading. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you, Casper. 
This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemail is from Emily Hilton, and she does describe someone taking their own life. So if you want to skip this, you can skip ahead just about two minutes. Hello, Harry Potter Sacred Text team. My name is Emily, and I'm from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I just finished listening to Book 6, Chapter 5, An Excess of Phlegm, read through the theme of yearning. And I want to call attention to Tonks and the yearning that she is going through in this chapter. We hear through Hermione that Tonks thinks it is her fault that Sirius died. And while we don't know if this is really what she's thinking in this moment, it brought up a raw and very painful memory for me. I'm a registered nurse and I work in mental health, specifically with people diagnosed with psychotic disorders. On September 6, 2018, just over a year ago, I went to check on a patient in her home and found that she had passed away. She had taken her own life. That feeling of it's my fault still has not gone away, no matter how much I know it logically. Both myself and Tonks are yearning for a better past. We are yearning for answers that we will never get and an outcome that is utterly impossible. I don't know who said it, but I once heard that forgiveness is the willingness to give up hope of a better past. While I don't know if this yearning will ever really go away for me, I so appreciated being able to see myself in Tonks in this moment. So I'd like to offer a blessing to Tonks and to anyone who's blamed themselves for the loss of someone in their lives, whether it was truly their fault or not. I bless you and I hope that one day that yearning for a better past will come to an end, or at least be less painful with each passing year. Finally, I would love to hear your views on yearning and yearning that doesn't come to an end because you can never get what you're yearning for. Thanks again for the podcast. I know it brings joy to so many the world over. 
Emily, I can so resonate. And you have such a beautiful phrase to describe it, you know, a hope for a better past. I think in some ways, all of us have regret and, and can identify at least a little bit with with that, that we long for things to be different, that that is really part of what living life is. Life is not perfect, and therefore the the memory of it will always be imperfect. Perhaps the best we can do, apart from the hard work and the, the efforts to change the broader structural problems, is to to witness what has happened and not to forget. And I'm grateful that you you show us how. I don't think that there's anything wrong with yearning for something that we'll never have. I think I will always yearn for a climate unchanged world. And so I think that the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is this a healthy yearning or a destructive one in which I should try to step away from that yearning? And so I think that there's a difference between yearning that it never happened, which, of course, that is the most hopeful thing, but we can't rewrite the past. And so instead yearning for a form of self-forgiveness that, you know, this was not your fault and all of the self-blame that we can muster is not going to change the past. Vanessa, we're blessing two more people from this chapter and you are blessing who? Lavender Brown. Yes. Because she's got a crush and she's going for him. Yes. And there are so many gender norms around, like, you have to wait for the boy to ask you out and you should be subtle and blah, blah, blah. Nope. Boring. <laughs> Lavender is like, I like you. Smile, smile. Show up at Quidditch practice. Ugh, Hermione. Love it. <laughs> Go after what you want. Yes. Ask for the raise. Ask the guy out. Ask the girl out. Ask them out. Do it. Ask for what you want in this world. Nobody's going to guess. Good things happen. Yeah. My mom asked my dad to marry her. She really? Was like, yeah. She was like, let's do this. Ugh. Yeah. What did he say? Duh. <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. What about you, Casper? Who are you blessing? Well, I'm going to bless Ron. <laughs> the object of my affection. <laughs> I think <laughs> this might be my favorite line of the entirety of book six. Uh, Hermione is describing why Harry is so fanciable, right? Like he's he's had his glow up. He's a foot taller. And Ron says to no one in particular, but out loud, I'm tall. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I was, <laughs> I just love it. <laughs> and obviously we know Lavender is seen, but I, I just love that Ron is like, just confident in himself. He's like, I'm tall. Why? Why not me? Um, good for you, Ron. And go, go get your life. <laughs> You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about this episode. Come and join the over 1,500 people supporting us on Patreon. You power this show's existence. We are so, so grateful. You can leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail. Please join our fundraiser for Raices to support Justice at the Border. And keep an eye out for registration going live for our second Harry Potter pilgrimage. We hope to see you there or at one of our live shows. We're in D.C. on November 7th, Chicago November 21st, and St. Louis December 19th. Next week, we're going to be reading Chapter 12, Silver and Opals, through the theme of resilience. This episode of Harry Potter and Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is a wonderful human named Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Chelsea Erson. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are part of Night Vale Presents. 
We'd like to thank Emily Hilton for this week's voicemail. As always, we want to thank Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye, everyone. And if you live in Phoenix, picket those golf courses because they use way too much water. It drives me wild with rage. Or do what I did when I was small and sell golf balls that you found back to the golfers and make money.